the, the Swiss lawmakers, for them it was more important to protect banks and the banking sector than protecting democracy. Hello everyone and welcome to a new episode of Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. Thanks for tuning in. My name is Christopher Starke and on today's episode it is our great pleasure to welcome Frederik Obermeier. Frederik is an investigative journalist who won the Pulitzer Prize for the Panama Papers revelations. He has led the investigative team of the Süddeutsche Zeitung in Germany and recently founded his own investigative newsroom called Paper Trail Media. We had Frederick on our podcast two times before, talking with him about the Panama Papers and the FinCEN files. But today we discuss the latest revelations, titled The Swiss Secrets. These publications, together with the Organized Crime and Corruption Reporting Project, or short OCCRP, shed light on the nefarious activities of the Swiss bank Credit Suisse. We further talked about differences in reporting on financial crime versus street crime and about press freedom in Switzerland. To me, it is always very inspiring to talk with Frederik, and I hope you will enjoy this conversation as well. Have fun. Thank you so much for coming on to the Kickback podcast today. It has yeah, become a, an annual tradition in a way. Every time that you and your team discover or reveal groundbreaking crimes in illicit finance and white collar crime. We talk about it on this podcast. I don't know how I feel about it, whether it's a good thing that there are so much, so many revelations coming out or whether it's a bad thing that shows that there is still a lot of illicit finance going on in these financial institutions. But anyway, thank you so much for being here. Uh, looking forward to this conversation. Thanks for having me on your show. And uh For me, it's a, it's a good sign, to be honest, um, because it shows that there is interest on uh, investigative journalism, what we do all around the, uh, the world, what journalists all around the world uncover. And I think it's also a good sign that this reaches a, a far bigger audience than it did like in the, in the past decade. Yeah, it seems like it. I think when it started with the with the Panama Papers, there was a lot of interest, and then the FinCEN files and the Pandora Papers. And every time, it feels like there is there's more media attention coming to these issues, which I, I would agree that it's definitely a good sign. But before we jump in, maybe not all of our listeners have listened to our previous episode with you on the Panama Papers and on the FinCEN files. Could you maybe give us a, a brief rundown on who you are and how you became interested in investigative journalism? Well, my name is Friedrich Obermeier. I'm an investigative reporter based in Munich, in Germany, the south of Germany. I'm working in investigations on financial crimes since, I would say, 10 years. Um, it started with a project called Offshore Leaks. Later, I worked on the Swiss Leaks, um, on the Luxembourg um, Leaks. And then uh, an anonymous whistleblower um, leaked the Panama Papers to my colleague Bastian Obermeier and me. And that basically was the start uh, of a, a series uh, of investigations that started um, here in Munich. There was the Paradise Papers, the Bahamas Leaks, and our latest investigation that we initiated was the Swiss Secrets. And that's a, an investigation on the Swiss bank Credit Suisse. It's one of the biggest banks in Switzerland, and it's a notorious bank. It's a bank that is involved in scandals already for decades. But still, it was something 
there was only small cracks in this wheel of secrecy when, for example, invest, uh, when investigators from the US or Germany uh, investigated customers from Credit Suisse. But now for the first time, we had an, a whistleblower who approached us and leaked information on more than 30,000 Credit Suisse clients from all around the world for us. And that's basically, if you receive such a treasure trove, that's always uh, what brings a, a huge smile into my face, but because you always know this can show us and tell us a little bit more about the secrecy world that is out there. Yeah, definitely. And I think there are so many interesting stories coming out of this revelation. And uh, what was the real content? I saw there is a little bit what it showed how the, the bank was involved with the regime in Venezuela and how it, um, it helped laundering money there. But what was the most surprising and what were the most interesting stories that came out of these leaks? What do you think? I mean, for me, the most revealing part was that given that the data that we received ranged from the 40s well into the last or the latest uh, decades, we saw that over this time, Caliswis catered to autocrats, to criminals, and they, in my opinion, didn't uh, do a proper um, due diligence. I mean, you could still say like, oh, this is old stuff, and that is basically what Credit Suisse is, uh, is claiming. But more than two-thirds of the accounts that we looked into were opened after 2000, and many still exist today. That shows you part of the problem. That shows you that even after all those scandals Credit Suisse has already been involved in, they did not change the system. They still take customers and clients where experts tell us, like, you should shy away from them. You should not even communicate any further with them after our first approach, because it is people where every alarm bell should ring in a, a bank, especially an international bank like Credit Suisse. That sounds like this is mainly a compliance issue, right, of this one bank. Do you think this is really systemic with all the, the big banks, or is this, this is a particular case of Credit Suisse? Well... I would not um, say that it's a problem of all banks worldwide, but at least it's a specific problem of Swiss banks. Swiss banks are notorious um, for their intransparency. Wherever you look, you see, and if you like, for example, look for an, a bank account that where you can hide your money, you will always be sent to Switzerland because Switzerland, that's, that's the country of banking secrecy. That's the country where you could open uh, numbered accounts in the, in the past. And that is meaning accounts that are not attached to your name, where only a small number of individuals in a bank, mostly the high-ranking bankers, knew who is behind this basically code. And I mean, Switzerland told and Swiss, the Swiss banking sector told the public in the past years, like, hey, we cleaned up. We are exchanging information. They're always speaking about a bicycle strategy, a white money strategy, meaning they got rid of all the black money and now it's only it's all fine, nothing to worry about. But if you look behind this like PR wording, you can see that, yes, indeed, um, Swiss banks and Switzerland do exchange, for example, information with by far more countries than they did in the past. But they do so with the powerful countries, the mighty countries. They do so with the US, with European countries. But they don't do so 
with the most corrupt countries in this world, the poorest countries in this world. So if you look, for example, on this ranking of the richest countries in the world, you can bet that with the richest ones, the ones at the top, Switzerland does exchange information. But at the bottom, with most of those countries, they don't. If you look on the most corrupt countries, these are the countries where Switzerland normally doesn't exchange information. With the least corrupt countries, they do. And that is basically the, the core of the problem. I think, for, for example, a German citizen, as I am, it wouldn't make sense to try to hide your money in a Swiss bank account. But for a corrupt um, elites from African countries, from Latin American countries, it still makes sense because there is no information exchange with, with many countries there. And I think that tells you a little bit of how Switzerland is acting. They do exchange information where they know that they can't stand the pressure. For example, they can't stand the pressure of the United States. Don't mess with the United States because you need access to the dollar system if you want to be an international bank. But you don't need access to the markets in uh, countries in, in Latin America um, or Africa from a global perspective from a band like, like Credit Suisse. That's the one part, and that is what experts call the zebra strategy. Like you have the white money strategy with the rich countries and still black money with the poor countries. But then there's another huge problem, in my opinion, and where there's not enough discussions about it. In Swiss banks, most of them have in like their basement huge vaults where you like have your own small vault and where you can store your stuff. And that is why, I mean, Swiss banks are selling this and advertising. It's like, hey, you can put your valuables in there. For example, your nice family pictures that you don't want to lose if your house burns down. But if you ask me, I think that there are family pictures in some of those walls. But I, I guess that in many of them, there's money in there. There um, is gold in there. And that is uh, the, about the content of those walls. Even with the uh, with mighty countries like the US or, or Germany, Switzerland doesn't exchange information. And if you look on how big these walls are, I had a look at Trading Swiss, how the smallest vault, how many euros, for example, it could you could put in there. But you could still store around about 1 million euro in the smallest vault. That is 1 million euro that you could hide from authorities. I'm far away from owning 1 million uh, euros. So that gives you like something like an impression that that is the smallest world. And now think about how much money you could store in the biggest worlds. Those worlds are as huge as a normal room in an in a apartment, um, like here in Munich, where you can't afford uh, big rooms. So that gives you an idea of where the problem lies. And I think that in the financial industry and also like among western states there was too much like appreciating what switzerland has done in the past but not enough looking on the big loopholes that are still existing and i think the swiss secrets showed that this problem because they showed that this is not an, a problem of the past that this is still ongoing and we also saw that obviously um Kelly swiss does not look closely who their customers are because we found for example sentenced uh, human traffickers still uh, being able to have a, a credit swiss account also they have been already sentenced and are already in prison and like think about it now like this was for example a human uh, trafficker from uh, from sweden and 
he worked basically online. And this would mean that he could still have used his Credit Suisse account to basically launder his proceeds um, of these activities. And I think this is really something we should look into. I must say, unfortunately, the Swiss secrets revelation got a little bit lost uh, in the fog of war because um, we, and I mean, we teamed up with The Guardian um, and with OCCRP and other media outlets all around the world. But we published it only days before the Russia, Russian invasion to Ukraine. And of course, this is a by far more important issue in these times. I mean, we are speaking about a, a brutal war and a brutal invasion. But if you look closely, you can see that those topics have a connection. Because in these days, I mean, the European Union, the US, the UK are all speaking about how to force Putin to stop this war. And one option or one tool those governments have in hand is financial sanctions, sanctions against the people close to Putin, against the oligarchs. And if you now look who might be hiding his money or her money in uh, Switzerland, well, this is the oligarchs. We found, for example, the sister of Alisher Usmanov, an, a now sanctioned uh, Russian oligarch. And this sister, sister um, is working as a, as a normal doctor, nothing fancy. But we found dozens of Credit Suisse accounts with more than 2 billion Swiss francs on those bank accounts. And that gives you an idea for the problem, because even if you're a good doctor, I think doctors earn a lot of money if you're good. But earning more than 2 billion um, Swiss francs? No, you can't tell me uh, that this is earned by by medical practice. In my opinion, my suspicion is that this part of this money is money of her brother, Alisha Osman. Well, that's super interesting. and uh, So many aspects that I would like to get deeper into. First, circling back to what you called the zebra strategy. I've never heard that expression, but that's really interesting. Because I think one of the most revealing things that I think the Pandora Papers show for the first time is why this problem exists uh, in the first place because of a lack of incentive to, to change it, right? Because it showed that so many uh, heads of states and powerful politicians um, were profiting from uh, shell companies and so on and so forth. And it seems like this information exchange between countries and the, the Swiss banks seems to, to be the same root of the problem because I, I would guess that what needs to happen for such an information exchange to occur is governments pushing for that, right? I think this is what what, uh, the US and what European countries do. They probably pressured the Swiss banks to start this information exchange. And what do you think needs to happen, let's say from these countries that you you mentioned, more autocratic countries in Latin America and Africa and, and all over the world, what would need to happen in order for such information exchange to come to fruition? Well, first of all, you're speaking indeed about a very crucial point uh, in this strategy or in this, in this discussion. Because if you imagine you were a corrupt minister of an autocratic country, then it would be you speaking with the Swiss uh, government about signing such an information uh, exchange treaty. And now, if you wanted to plunder your country and funnel money out of this country, would you really try 
to sign a very strict information exchange treaty? My guess is no. And then on the other hand side, you have the, the Swiss. And in Switzerland, I was not aware of the fact of how intertwined politics in Switzerland and the banking sector are. There are many, many lawmakers who, aside of this job as parliamentarians, still are working for banks or are working for like the banking industry still, because this is still allowed um, in Switzerland. And that also shows you a little bit of the problem. Why should they try to enforce a strict information exchange treaty with another country, knowing that this might lower the revenue of the bank that or the banks that they are working for? But getting back to your question, what could and should be done? I think we need now a very strict discussion about this problem. We as a public and as a society, we need to push this discussion because we should not and cannot rely on politicians. We should really like pressure them and hold them to account that like, I mean, I did the Panama Papers in 2016 and I heard so many warm words of politicians afterward. What needs to be changed? hey, we need more transparency, we need um, ultimate beneficial ownership registries in all countries all around the world. And yes, something happened. Some countries um, introduced them, but there are still so many loopholes. And why are um, jurisdictions like the United Kingdom with their overseas territories not touching, uh, for example, trusts? Why are Switzerland, Liechtenstein and Luxembourg not touching the system of foundations, of Stiftungen? There you see the problem. And one problem also is still the United States of America. I mean, we have seen huge steps in the past month, like the United States enforcing uh, ultimate beneficial ownership registry. This is something that they should have introduced already a decade or decades ago, because everyone knew that some of the most notorious uh, secrecy jurisdictions were U.S. states like Delaware. But still, I mean, in my opinion, the U.S. did not go far enough because this registry that they introduced is not open to journalists. It's not open to the public. It's not open to civil society. groups. But those are the driving forces when it comes to bringing more, uh, to shed more light on this uh, money laundering or corruption. Let's not be naive. It's not authorities. It's not policemen or prosecutors. They do good work. But like on a broad scale, that's civil society, that's journalists, that's activists. And I, sh I think that jurisdictions like the U.S. should show that they want to take it serious. I mean, it's Joe Biden speaking about the fight of, uh, against corruption being part of the national security uh, strategy of the United States. Yeah, that sounds good. But then do your first step. Make company ownership transparent to the public because... I mean, there's still so many, for example, oligarchs who are still trying to hide their money in the U.S. as well. And the reason why they, they could is because there is not such a, a register out there. That's really interesting because I think on, on the one hand, you could say, okay, this is very alarming because maybe citizens might feel helpless because they cannot rely on the politicians they elect. But on the other hand, I think this is also a very uplifting statement that there is 
something that each and every one of us can do by engaging in civil society activities, by pushing for change. And this brings me to, to another question that I had for you, because I was always very curious when you had these big revelations and these publication strategies. And I think the, the Panama Papers really showed how well they were thought through, because not publishing everything on the same day, but really having a strategy when to publish what. And of course, there are some other events that come in the way of that. Now it was the, the war in Ukraine that broke out, I think, really a week or something after after the, the Swiss secret revelations. But I, what I was wondering is, how do you, as investigative journalists, evaluate the success of your work? Uh, are you me measuring attention? Or because you also referred a lot to policy initiatives that came afterwards, because th there can be a huge time lag between publication of the of the Panama Papers or the Pandora Papers, and then really policy change. It could take years or even decades, but maybe you could still attribute the effects of this, some publications that you and your colleagues did. So is there like a yeah, strategic, let's say, evaluation of your work, or is it more like on, on gut feeling or hunches? Well, it's rather the later one, because I personally try to shy away from trying to evaluate investigative journalism because how, where do you start? Is it clicks? Well, then go for the cat pictures. Um, investigative journalism will not get as much um, clicks as nice uh, videos of cats playing with, with each other. Do you take investigations as a criteria? Well, that's a bad idea because um, investigations normally take years um, of, of like investigations by prosecutors. Then... Would it be like policy change that also takes a year? So that's why I'm, I'm not sure what a criteria would be. Is it public attention? I, I think the Panama Papers got by far more public attention than, for example, the China cables about mass internment uh, of the Uyghurs in China. But still, this is a super important topic. And then let's uh, walk through this uh, different criteria. I think the China cables were super important to shed light on what's going on in, in the province uh, of Xinjiang in, in, in China. But there will not be major change uh, like on the policy side because China is an autocratic state. They, they give a shit, sorry uh, for my French, but they give a shit about what a German journalist writes in a German newspaper. But still, it is important to inform the public because it's a world region where most people will never travel to, where most people don't have friends, where they would not learn what's going on there. Do you think that there's investigations? Yeah, there might be investigations for like crimes against humanity. But so far, I don't know uh, of them. And still, I think it's an important, it was an important investigation. Uh, so for me, I don't try to measure success of an, of an investigation. I'm still happy to see if an investigation brings change, like for example, in the policy sector, if it triggers investigations. But that doesn't make the difference between me being um, happy after a workday or being sad after a workday. For me, it's really, I get my motivation out of the work itself. I have a, it's, it's like an addiction um, to, yeah, I mean, when you, when you uncover things and when you uncover stuff that the, the riches and the powerful try to hide from the public, that gives me a very good feeling. And that's already enough for keeping me motivated. Um, and I hope that many, many other colleagues out there uh, share this view, because otherwise one might get frustrated. 
And that would be bad because we need investigative journalism more than ever in, in these days. And as you speak about civil society, by the way, I think it's what we are currently in the context of the Ukraine war are seeing is a little bit of a shift because, yes, there is investigative journalists hunting and searching for the money and the assets of Russian oligarchs. But there's also huge civil society activities unfolding in this one. I mean, you see like companies in Ukraine and experts in the Ukraine who've in the past like catered the banking sector with their compliance services that are now shifting their, their focus on Russian oligarchs because they think, well, that's their little contribution to defending their country. That's what they can do. It doesn't make sense for them picking up arms because if they have never shot a, a rifle. But that is their part of helping to defend the, their country against Russian invaders. And I think that's very interesting because I think there we have a special expertise. I mean, if you've worked in the due diligence or compliance sector for decades and are now like using this to track oligarchs, I think that's very interesting and that could push investigators and prosecutors as well like to move faster because when civil society can, why shouldn't they? Yeah, definitely. This is how civil society can contribute. And maybe people take this approach instead of getting more cynical about such revelations that they think, okay, this is just what our politicians do. And uh, there's nothing we can do about it. And in my, in my last seminar on investigative journalism, one of my students pointed out that there was a, a study, and I thought that was really interesting, measuring how people perceive White collar crime against street crime. What is the larger problem for society? And it seems like even though the cost for society of white collar crime far exceeds that of street crime, people perceive street crime as more of a problem. So there, there seems to be a disconnect between what people perceive of white collar crime, illicit finance, corruption, money laundering, and so on, in contrast to violence, for example. So what do you think investigative journalists could do exceeding what they are currently doing to bring that more to the public attention. Maybe even this, this more activist approach to investigative journalism to make the citizens care more about these issues. How, how do you perceive yourself as an investigative journalist? Do you, do you sometimes have this also this activist approach or do you want to step back and I'm here to inform the public rather than to also encourage them? Well, I do consider myself strictly as an investigative journalist and not as an activist, but I have my own views, I have my own opinion, and if I'm asked for them, I will voice them. But speaking about the issue that you mentioned, I think that is also like the fault of us as journalists, because in the past, we, I think there was amazing reports about uh, financial crime, but we didn't focus enough on the victims of, those financial, of these financial crimes. When it comes to street crime, it's by far more easier as a journalist like to identify the victim and mention the harm that has been done, for example, to a, an old lady being robbed uh, or being an, a man being stabbed. But when it comes to financial crime, it's rather abstract. I mean, because who are the victims of corrupt elites uh, plundering a whole continent? Yeah, that's the whole continent, but it's, you don't have one individual that you could like photograph and you could show the, the, the picture um, in the newspaper or you could film this person because it's a whole society. Whenever I'm asked for who are the victims of, for example, tax evasion in Germany, I like 
hey, it's you, me, it's all of us. If we cannot afford a, a good healthcare system, if we cannot afford a good and free education, if we are driving our cars through bumping streets, if we do not have an, enough money like to bring forward the energy change, like the, the green revolution to switch from um, nuclear and coal energy to more sustainable ways, that is due to tax evaders. Because they are keeping this money that would be needed for, for doing those measures um, away from the government and from the authorities. And I think that is something that I think a lot about. I know that there's huge discussion in the journalistic sphere of how we could better address this. And I think there is first steps like trying to focus not only on the culprits, but also on the victims. But it is a process. And I think that needs to be done more. And also, I think I see a certain evolution when it comes also to pop culture. In the past, if you look like TV series, that was all about street crime. Uh, when you watch series about persecutors as well, and policemen and women, it was always about street crime. But now you see like a little bit of a shift more to financial crime and follow the money investigations. You could also see like, the Panama Papers being mentioned in billions. You could watch a, an amazing Soderbergh movie um, about the Panama Papers. And I think that is good because this is how you reach masses and how you can show them who the victims of those crimes are. It's super interesting. I never thought about it this way, that also pop culture increasingly it takes up these issues and tries to, to raise awareness by this, but, but through entertainment in a way. And it's interesting because this effect that you're describing is really known in, in psychology as the identifiable victim effect, that people care more and show more empathy toward events where there is a clear identifiable victim for them. And I think this is what makes it so hard with these kinds of, of white-color crime, is when all of us are the victims, right? And uh, maybe, no. as you said, it is very important to connect these money laundering directly with a rotting infrastructure and a lack of, of public goods, for example. Um, I quickly want to, to circle back to the Swiss secrets because something that I found very interesting, and correct me if I'm, if I'm misinformed here, is that Swiss media outlets were not directly involved in the investigation because of this Article 47 and the bank secrecy laws that whistleblowers and even journalists could face significant jail time if they uncover bank secrets. So first of all, is this correct? And how did you work in the end with Swiss journalists? And what does it tell us about the, the state of media freedom in Switzerland in general? Well, we would have loved to work with Swiss journalists on the Swiss secrets. First of all, because it's always better to have a local journalist working with you if I report on an issue uh, regarding a certain country. If I report on, or when I reported on the Icelandic prime minister on the Panama Papers, it was a logical step to involve Icelandic journalists. So we would have loved to involve Swiss journalists now to the Swiss secrets. But, and we had a logical partner there, the Tamedia group that is also publishing the, Tag, the daily Tagesanzeiger. We've worked with them in offshore leaks, Panama Papers, Paradise Papers, you name it. But when we approached them and asked, like, would you want to be part of it? We expected a clear yes. But then they were like, whoa, 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 wait. Please do first read Article 47 of the Swiss banking law. 
And we were like, whoa, that's a little bit of a strange reaction. We are offering like you to lift the wheel of secrecy on one of the most important uh, banks uh, in Switzerland of one of the most notorious. And you are like, stop. And then we did more research on the Swiss banking secrecy law. And Article 47 is an article that came into force or that was changed only some years ago. And it now punishes, in a way, everyone who is sharing banking information. And let's face the facts here, it was very important. Banking information, how this law interprets it, is already the information if I would get from a banking insider the information that you don't have a Swiss bank account in a certain Swiss bank. If I would publish that, you would say like, I guess like, yeah, okay, that's fine. Now the public knows that you don't have one. But this would already mean breaking the Swiss banking secrecy law. Sharing this data falls under this clause. And you can go to, go to jail for up to three years if you're sharing such information. And I mean, we have such restrictions in many, many other countries as well. But normally there is little clauses that allow you, for example, as a journalist, if there is huge public interest to still publish um, such data. And normally it is allowed to look into this data first, investigate it, do your research, and then decide if there's public interest. It, because, I mean, we could still like investigate stuff and come to the conclusion like, no, there's not enough public interest, then we would have to put it aside and would never publish. But even that first step is not allowed due to this um, law. And this was a real shock for us because, I mean, Switzerland is one of the oldest democracies on earth. Press freedom is a crucial pillar of democracy. And then realizing that this little, little paragraph in this law makes it nearly impossible for investigative journalists to, for example, receive banking data, investigate it, and then decide to publish it. And that is what I realized then also the reason why when you read about financial crime in Swiss um, newspapers, I always wondered why there's not more details in there because we are in, in Germany are always like fans of details. We would say like, ah, oh, this is uh, autocrats, A has X amount in account one, two, three at bank C. And in a Swiss newspaper, you would normally read like autocrat A has a certain amount without naming the amount at a Swiss bank, without naming the bank, without naming the culprit. And now I understand it because they wanted to reduce the legal risk. But when we shared information on more than thousands of uh, bank accounts, you cannot like argue in front of, or it's hard to argue like, oh, this, we made a little mistake. No, no, it's thousands of bank accounts. We wanted to investigate it. And this was also like part of our Swiss secret story then that we wanted to tell the public about this problem. Because if you don't allow investigative journalists in one of the most uh, notorious secrecy jurisdictions on earth to investigate financial crimes or other stuff or like corruption um, or bankers with criminal behavior, that means you are not enabling holding them accountable. And that is really a crucial issue. And that is why we couldn't uh, involve Swiss journalists uh, in there. And when we published, I mean, there was a, a very nice cartoon in, in the Swiss Tagesanzeiger that showed Helvetia, uh, like the woman standing for Switzerland, 
and a, a journalist was sitting in front of her and he was was basically handcuffed and he couldn't speak. And Helvetia told the autocrats and criminals in the back, like, okay for you? And they were like grinning and like here smiling. And that comes back to the point. It's like here, the, the Swiss lawmakers, for them, it was more important to protect banks and the banking sector than protecting democracy. And we see the, the, the consequences now. I spoke to the UN special rapporteur on, on press freedom and uh, freedom of expression, Irene Khan, uh, some days ago. And she voiced huge concerns. And she already told us that she had addressed the issue to the um, Swiss government, that she will raise the issue in front of the um, UN um, Committee on, on Human Rights in June already. She will mention Switzerland in her report. She will mention it in a row with autocratic space. And that should, if I were a Swiss citizen, that would worry me. I mean, it worries me as a German citizen. But I really hope that Swiss lawmakers wake up here. There is a, an expert hearing end of this week um, in Switzerland, and I hope they really change this law because it has tremendous consequences on the long term. And we already see it that Reporters Without Border, this nonprofit organization, is publishing this ranking on, on press freedom every World Press Freedom Day. Today is World Press uh, Freedom Day by coincidence. And we saw that. Uh, Switzerland, who was normally considered to be a, a country with a lot of press freedom, they're still on the topper uh, part of this ranking or the upper part, but they're dropping. They, they're now like four, four places down than the, the past time. And the reasoning the experts pointed out is, among others, Swiss secrets and Article 47. And I think this should be an alarm bell now in Switzerland, but we'll see if they change the law. If they don't do it, then that's a clear signal. Then for them, it's more important to protect bankers and also potential um, criminals um, than protecting press free. Yeah, that, that's super interesting. And it seems like going back to what we discussed previously about evaluation, I don't think that there is a coincidence that this issue is now raised because it seems like when there is enough public attention and there is this policy window that opens and maybe in this in this open window, then it is easier to push for, for such changes than when there is no public interest at all. And the, the Swiss secrets really shed light and put the spotlight on the problem in, in Switzerland. And well, what's really interesting about what you said before, I, I talked with uh, Will Fitzgibbon about the Pandora Papers and what he what he pointed out is that one of the strengths of ICIJ was that the stories that they found in the leaks, they could really like sort it out and give it to the local journalists who then covered the topics. And what you're describing is that there seems to be this void in Switzerland because Swiss journalists are not allowed to report on these issues the same way other journalists could. And um, well, I'm interested to get your take on this. Maybe this gives more responsibility to foreign journalists, as you did in the Swiss secret, to report on these issues on behalf of Swiss journalists in a way, right? Sure. And it's an absurd situation knowing that some of the best follow the money journalists are based in Switzerland, but they cannot report on their own country and their own banks. So that is a, is a huge problem, but I understand them. I mean, I personally am currently not traveling to Switzerland. Because we know that Credit Suisse like, is hunting the leaker. We cannot rule out that there's already a persecution ongoing because that's also an, an important part of this law is like 
public prosecutors are forced to investigate such cases. They cannot say like, I'll only do it if somebody goes to the police and tells us to investigate. No, they are forced to do so. And I do not want to be questioned. I, For me, especially as source protection is key in, in this thing, uh, for me, doing this with secret was also taking into the account that I might not be able to travel to Switzerland for several years until um, I can be sure that there is no prosecution against me and all my colleagues around the world who did this crucial investigation. Wow, that, that's incredible. And it's, yeah, it's interesting, maybe to, as, as a last question, because I know that yeah, you have to go soon, is, yeah, on the, on the one hand, I mean, of course, we all agree that bank secrecy is important and press freedom is, is also important. And it's, it, you always have to strike a balance between two important rights and, and important public, public values. But do you think Swiss is like a, an outlier here? Or do you think that this balance is struck adequately in, in other jurisdictions, for example, Germany? Or, or do you think that there could be major improvements in these accounts also in other jurisdictions? Or is Switzerland really the outlier here? There must be improvements in nearly all jurisdictions all around the world. I think that there is no balance yet. There's by far more protection of privacy than helping to enable uh, investigate financial crime. Because if you ask me, I don't have a problem and I don't see the privacy, why you should protect privacy um, in a way that you can't see who is the ultimate beneficial owner of a certain uh, company. I think the public has a right to know who is behind each company. I don't want to know how much is on your bank account. Don't get me wrong. But I want to know how many sanctioned oligarchs have bank accounts in Germany. Because if you and I, if journalists and society don't know about the number, for example, the sheer number of those bank accounts or the, the, the banks who uh, cater those oligarchs, we cannot control what authorities are doing to enforce the sanctions, for example. And speaking about Switzerland, for me, a major problem is that Switzerland is considered, and righteously, a very democratic country. It's a Western country. It's a rich country. If such a country does not protect press freedom and freedom of expression and thus hinder investigations uh, on financial crimes, Why shouldn't other countries follow this example? They will always point their finger like, hey, the Swiss don't do it. Why should I? And I think that is a part of the problem. That's similar to the US, by the way. Tax havens like Panama always complained about the US pointing their fingers on them and them themselves not having, for example, a, a, an open and transparent company or real estate register. And I think there was a, a certain a grain of truth in this argument. Because if you point your fingers on other jurisdictions, you first have to clean up your own backyard. And I think I see first steps on that one, but there needs to be done by far more, not only by the US, but not only by Switzerland, but also on the whole uh, European Union. I mean, we still have so many tax havens within the European Union, speaking about Malta, Netherlands, Cyprus. This is something where European lawmakers should finally do their homework. We have seen so many scandals, and now if we still only if they only preach and do not uh, practice, I think that shows us something. And I guess that they should should and could feel the consequences when it comes to the to the next election. Yeah, this is super interesting what you described, Frederick. And before you go, we always have the pick of the podcast in the end, and you touched already a little bit on also 
pop culture movies, maybe series that pick up on these topics. Do you have some recommendations for our listeners who are not familiar with these kinds of issues and want, let's get a, a soft introduction into investigative journalism and how it relates to financial crime? I just read uh, Money Man from uh, Dan McCrum. That's a, a British journalist uh, working for the Financial Times. And he uncovered uh, the Wirecard scandal. That's one of the biggest corruption scandals here in Germany. And that's an amazing read because it's like him describing how he worked with his sources, how the company tried to stop him, how they sent lawyers after him, how they sent private detectives after him. So that's a real thriller. And I learned still a lot um, about journalism, so I can only recommend that one. Well, thank you so much. And thanks a lot for your time today. Um, it was really insightful and uh, I really enjoyed our, our conversation and looking forward to the next one when you have your next big scoop. Thanks for having me and fingers crossed. Um, so if some potential whistleblowers are listening uh, to your podcast, you will find me uh, on the internet, my contact details, also the encrypted ones. I would be more than happy. <laughs> Fantastic. All right. Thank you so much, Frederick. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. If you want to learn more about Frederick's work, please check out the show notes. Also make sure to check out our first two episodes with him on the Panama Papers, which is episode 6, and the FinCEN Files, which is episode 39. You find other interviews we conducted with investigative journalists in our feed. For example, we interviewed Will Fitzgibbon about the Pandora Papers or Anastasia Kirilenko on exposing corruption in Russia. If you want to support our podcast, please share this interview with your family and friends. To stay updated, follow us on Twitter under at KickbackGAP. Kickback is a joint production of the Interdisciplinary Corruption Research Network and the Global Anti-Corruption Blog. It is made by Niels Köpis, Matthew Stevenson, Jonathan Kleinpass and me, Christopher Starke. With assistance by Amy Assad and music by Kehan Golkar. Stay safe everyone, until next time.